1942, C.S. Lewis published The Screwtape Letters, a fictional series of notes written from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, a junior demon, just learning how to get in the way of followers of Jesus. This past year, one of those fictional letters took on a whole new resonance. It goes like this. My dear Wormwood, plagues are a most effective weapon given to us by our Father below. That's the devil. Normally, Christians are quite comfortable in receiving their dreaded sacraments and gathering in their prayers and their other heinous arts. But if you can stir up hysteria by means of a plague, so that they cut themselves off from the gifts of our enemy, God, then the torment and the isolation will drive them to despair and will season them quite deliciously, much to our delight. Get them to forget altogether about their usual practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Encourage them to become gluttons, slanderers, to lose all regard for their neighbor, thinking only about themselves and their immediate needs. They will begin storing up treasures for themselves, which we can send moth and rust to destroy, further sweetening their torment. If you can, writes this senior demon, if you can, help them redefine their usual words like church and fellowship and ministry so that they feel comfortable cutting themselves off from God's care. And they can be tempted all the more. Mr. Wormwood, a plague is a tried and true method of taking their eyes off of God and getting them to worship their own bodies, a most desirable position for we tempters. Never let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) Pretty incredible, isn't it? Pretty incredible that in 1942, C.S. Lewis would write that fictional note from a senior demon to a junior demon. It's pretty incredible how well that shoe fits. In fact, it's too incredible. As I read about it uh, online a a few months ago and did a little bit of research, I found out that actually, no, C.S. Lewis did not write that one. It was authored in the style of the Screwtape Letters, but it isn't actually from the Screwtape Letters. But if we're honest, the shoe fits, doesn't it? If we think about our experience the past 16 months, it has shifted dramatically our rhythms and routines of our spiritual life. The challenges of the past year have not only brought distance, but division between us, and in some ways, in some ways, distance between us and God. So, we're engaging the series we're calling Holy Habits. We're exploring the spiritual disciplines, the sacred rhythms of life with Jesus in the family of God. These spiritual disciplines, these sacred rhythms, these holy habits that we can live out even when we couldn't be together in person. Last week we explored Sabbath. This week we engage a closely connected holy habit, simplicity. Now, simplicity is found throughout the scriptures, including right after what we've just heard read. It's a fascinating scene, isn't it? What Sue has just read for us a moment ago. Jesus is approached as a rabbi, from some unnamed man in the crowd who asks Jesus to do something rabbis normally do, to serve as a mediator in a dispute. But Jesus seems to think that the man does not want an arbiter, but rather he wants an advocate. 
And so he tells this striking story about a man who has a bumper crop and builds bigger barns to keep it all to himself. And then, just to be sure his disciples get the point of the story, just to be sure his disciples are tracking with him in his interaction with this man, Jesus turns to them and he says, Therefore, I tell you, I think we've got this. There we go. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, which, by the way, no one would ever do. People hated ravens in the first century. They were the bottom of the creature barrel, as far as anyone was concerned. But Jesus says, hey, think about even those ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn like this man. And yet, God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than those birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very small thing, why do you worry about the rest? So, Jesus gives us the raven example, and then he adds two more just to make sure we understand what he's getting at. He says, consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin, but not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those flowers. And then just for good measure, one final illustration. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow it's thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, that is, people who don't know about God, they run after those things, and yet your Father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. Think of the imagery there. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. While that story that Sue read is only found in Luke's gospel, uh, this passage is found almost word for word in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, just to be clear, if you ever find that I'm repeating myself sometimes, hey, Jesus did it first, okay? (laughs) Jesus, in Luke, he isn't here at the Sermon on the Mount. You almost wonder if it's this interaction with this unnamed man that inspired that part of the Sermon on the Mount that may have come later. As Jesus is giving that great sermon, he thinks back to this interaction, and he says, you know, you know, I had, uh, had this part of an uh, interaction with this guy that would work really well in this sermon at this moment, and just adds it in. Isn't it fascinating to uncover that context that prompts Jesus' teaching on simplicity? These are well-known words with striking illustrations that are easily understood. In fact, as I read it, I could hear a few of you reading along with me. And I bet you didn't even need the screen up there, did you? We know these words. We know these illustrations. They are easily understood, but they are not always agreed with or lived by, are they? If we're honest, we don't always put them into practice. At least, I know I don't. 
One of my favorite books um, by an author named John Mark Comer. He he admits that most of us disagree with or dislike Jesus' teachings on simplicity. He puts it this way. He says, if these sayings of Jesus sound crazy to you, you're not alone. They do to most of us in America. He says, when I first started to take Jesus seriously as a teacher and not just as my savior... It was Jesus' vision of the role of wealth in the good life that was most jarring to me. Honestly, it took me years to even agree with him. So, if you feel that way when you come to passages like this, know that you are not alone. If you hear Jesus saying, hey, don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll drink. Don't worry about what you wear. And you're thinking, actually, I'm quite worried about that. That's okay. Even philosophers have treaded into similar waters with fear and trembling. Friedrich Nietzsche once said that reliance on money would someday replace belief in God, as we would try to prove our ability to care for ourselves. More recently, a French sociologist named Jean Baudrillard argued that Nietzsche was almost right. He said, it's not money per se, but materialism that now gives us meaning. And this is true. Shopping is now the number one leisure activity with the average American spending just under 18 hours a week doing so. Just less than 18 hours is the average. And so if you're thinking, hey, I don't spend any time shopping, just think there's somebody else balancing the scales at 36. (laughs) And let me be the first to confess, there are some areas of my life where I am so committed to simplicity but you should see my Amazon wish list of books. I logged on this morning just to count up how many hundreds there are, and and they don't give you a number, because if you saw that number, you might think, that's too many books. But I did scroll all the way down and found that the first book I placed on my Amazon wish list was in May of 2006. What are the chances I'm going to scroll all the way down to the bottom of that wish list page and buy that book? Pretty good, actually. (laughs) See, actually, I probably won't, but it feels really good for my sinful little soul to know that it's there on my wish list, just so that I can remember what book I wanted to read 15 years ago, but didn't quite have the budget for. But think of the things Jesus mentions, what we eat and what we wear. No doubt he would add some things to the list today. If he were speaking to us, he might talk about cars or computers. But even those two most simple needs, what we eat and what we wear, Think about it. They go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were tempted by that tree with better fruit. And once they ate it, they clothed themselves when their eyes were open in order to hide from God and from one another. Even those two ancient worries, those two very simple concerns, prompt common day phrases. Think about it. You are what you eat. Right? Or how about clothes make the man? Harper's Magazine once spoofed the seven deadly sins with a picture of Santa Claus, the world's foremost authority, speaking out on the subject of greed. And he comments up there, it's a little too small to read, but he says, do you remember all those things you told me you wanted as a child? Well, your list may have changed, but I bet it hasn't gotten any shorter. Tim Keller tells a story of speaking on these deadly sins for a weekly men's breakfast, and the room was packed for the other six. But that weekly men's breakfast was empty the week he took up the topic of greed. 
because none among us want to be told that we shouldn't want what we want. And yet, this is the only other God Jesus calls out in the Gospels. Did you know that? This is the only other thing that Jesus says can function as a God in our life. This is the only one. Mammon, Jesus calls it, the God of money, of things, of stuff. And we know the line, how we work jobs we hate to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. But still, it's tough to stop, isn't it? It is now, and it was back then. And that's why Jesus calls our attention to affluenza, right? That's why Jesus points us to the problem of possessionitis. He says, it's darn near impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And we might think, well, yeah, of course, Jeff Bezos might have that problem, right? Richard Branson and their race to space, those guys should really think about that. But if you have more than $34,000 of income this year, you are in the 1% globally. We are those who may struggle to pass through the eye of that needle. Now, why does Jesus bring this up? Well, because Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus knows how tempting it is to define ourselves by what we have, and then what we have becomes who we are. Materialism gives us meaning. Think about it. If we eat Wheaties, we are having breakfast with champions, right? (laughs) If we go to Burger King, we can have it our way. And before you know it, we're all a little bit more like John D. Rockefeller, who, at the peak of his wealth, owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry. He had a net worth of 1% of the entire U.S. economy. But when he was asked how much is enough, he replied, just a little bit more. In current numbers, that would have been $1.8 trillion. But, you know, a little bit more would be nice. Amen? There's a current trend in our world toward minimalism, doing with as little as is humanly possible. There's one well-known television personality you may have learned this from. She encourages us to do away with anything that does not spark joy. Anybody heard that phrase? Go through your house. If it doesn't spark joy, you've got to get rid of it. And I didn't know this until this week, but I just Googled spark joy, and and I clicked onto her website. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, but this is true. Her website features for sale a number of things that apparently do spark joy. There is a stonewashed French linen pajamas in smoke pink. Have you ever heard of smoke pink color before? Stonewashed French linen pajamas in smoke pink that sell for $240. Those are some fancy PJs. (laughs) And you know what? I'll bet they spark joy. Isn't that fascinating? Think about that just for a moment. And I'm not criticizing this person, but think about the mindset and how easily we make that 180. Hey, get rid of stuff that doesn't spark joy. And check out my website for what does. When we come to passages like this one, we can err in two directions. One is toward licentiousness, the other is toward legalism. The licentious option says this, and and I won't ask for a show of hands, but this is a very common way of viewing Jesus. Jesus was a spiritual teacher. He teaches us about spiritual things. And so never mind the fact that Jesus talked about money ten times more than he talked about prayer. He's a spiritual teacher, so he didn't really mean it, and we don't really have to apply it, right? And so we can kind of run after whatever we want. 
That's the licentious option. We can do whatever we want. It's, Jesus wasn't really talking about it. But the other option is a kind of legalism. Think about it. The legalistic option says the only thing Jesus talked about was earthly issues. And that option says, how dare you for owning anything at all? Look at how little I can live on and shame on you for owning a car. You see, neither licentiousness nor legalism was Jesus' intention. What he's trying to point us to is a fullness of life in God's kingdom. Jesus wants us to see the interaction between our inner world and our outer world, that an inner simplicity cannot help but be revealed outwardly. Jesus wasn't intending to shame us for having things, nor even wanting things, but look at the words he uses, especially if, like me, you feel a little defensive when you read this passage. Look at the words he uses. He says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Things of this world will fail you. Jesus isn't trying to shame us, but ultimately trying to set us free from a reliance upon external goods to bring us happiness. I got to tell you, when, when, I click, when I click buy on that Amazon wish list, we know this now, right? Our brain releases this chemical called serotonin. And even before I read the book and put it on my shelf and never read it, I'm really happy to have it. <laughs> See, yesterday afternoon, um, my kids and I were playing in the front yard, a game that they made up, and I can't quite understand, but I was trying to have fun with them in it. And the Amazon truck pulled up right in front of our house. And someone hopped out with a box. And luckily, the delivery was for our neighbors. <laughs> because it could have been books for me. So I pulled out my Bible, and we had a talk about the holy habit of simplicity. And it was a wonderful moment. That last part's not true. We kept playing the game. But the smile that came on their faces, oh, ooh, the Amazon truck is here. What is it? What could it be? They find joy, they spark joy even in opening up my boxes of books. You see, we're often pulled one way or the other. Pulled toward licentiousness, do whatever you want, or legalism, how dare you. And let me take a quick right turn here in the sermon. This is why we love Indiana Jones so much. Right? That's what you were thinking? No? <laughs> Okay, remember that great scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Indy is deep in a cavern with, in, in the South American jungle. He's finally at that place where the shiny idol sits. Who remembers this? He's finally at that place, and he is gazing upon it. It is perched carefully on a weight-sensitive pedestal. And so he guesstimates the calculations in his head, and then he takes out a bag of sand out of his, his knapsack. He pours a little out, and then as quick as lightning, he snatches the idol and leaves the sandbag in its place. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I'm not going to show you now, you know all chaos breaks loose. A giant stone bowling ball starts to tumble toward him. Poison darts shoot out of the walls. Pits open up. Walls crash down. And we love this scene so much. And I'm convinced that Jesus loves it too. Because it helps us see how easily we can run after things of this world. Or better yet, have them delivered within two hours on Prime. Scripture tells us, and Indiana Jones shows us, that our hearts are little idol factories. That's why we want so many things so much. Our hearts are constantly trying to replace one thing with another shinier, newer model. We want something that sparks joy. 
We are more like Indiana Jones than we care to admit. We want just a little bit more. Our lists may have changed, but they have not gotten any shorter. Jesus knows we're like Indiana Jones. He knows this. That's why he tells the stories he does. Think about it. Jesus says, listen, um, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, and a man found the treasure in the field, and so he sold everything he had in order to buy that field and get that treasure. That's what the kingdom of God is like. You know what? The kingdom of God is like a, a merchant who deals with, with fine pearls. And when this merchant saw the finest pearl, he sold everything he had in order to have that one thing. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Why does Jesus tell us these stories? Because he knows that we're like Indiana Jones. Our hearts are constantly trying to replace one thing for another. Sometimes we think ourselves into new ways of acting, and and other times it's the opposite. The beauty of spiritual disciplines in the life of someone seeking to follow Jesus, the purpose of these sacred rhythms, these holy habits, are opportunities where we can act ourselves into new ways of thinking. So, if, like me, you struggle with simplicity and your wish list is a mile long, here's some ideas of leaning into a simpler life in a world of complexity. Here are some ideas to live more fully in God's kingdom rather than the kingdom of mammon. First, give some stuff away. De-accumulate. If your closet looks at all like mine, I could get rid of half of the clothes that I have and I would not know the difference. You can tell you see me wear the same thing every week. Number two, use things till they wear out. Use things till they stop working. Drive your car into the ground. Get it fixed when it's broken. Number three, enjoy things without owning them. We live in a world where if we like something, we've got to have it, right? That's another tagline from contemporary consumerism. Enjoy things without having to own them. In other words, lend and borrow freely. I can't tell you how many tools that I have borrowed from my neighbors through the years that are in their garages and that I don't have, but that I have because that pipe just broke and I need to figure out how to fix it. Number four, appreciate creation. Especially where we live, we are distanced from creation. Get back to it. I'm concerned that no one's writing these down. Come on, people. (laughs) Number five, Research who makes what and how they make it and where. If we truly believe that everybody has been made in the image of God by a loving God, and we do a little bit of research, we may support different brands because we may learn what the conditions are for their work. Uh, How about this one? Question commercials. Ask yourself, what are they really selling? (laughs) Give away 10% of the money you bring home. If that's not quite possible, um, try giving away 1% and then increase it by 1% every year. It wasn't my idea. A young family here in our church told me that's what they were doing. They said, gosh, we realized we became convicted that we don't tithe, but we can't do it right now, so every year, 1% more. And lastly... 
buy stuff for their usefulness instead of their status. I've never tried on $240 pajamas, so it's possible they spark a lot of joy. <laughs> but let's be honest, like, what's their real value? And how much joy can pajamas really bring? We do so. We, we enter into these sacred rhythms. We enter into these holy habits, these spiritual disciplines, um, not because we're trying, but because we're in training. We're in training to become more and more like Jesus. See, grace is not opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. And sometimes we act our way into new ways of believing and thinking. We do so in order that we might pattern our lives after Jesus. Amen? See, God's deepest desire is not just to ransom you and to bring you into his family and to promise you eternity. God's purposes are bigger than that. It's all included in that, but he actually wants us to live into a life that resembles his desires for us, a life that looks more and more like his son, Jesus. Remember that um, at his baptism, God the Father declares of Jesus, you are my son whom I love, in him I'm well pleased. And the spirit descends in the form of a dove, and it's this incredible Trinitarian moment where we hear the Father's voice and we see the son and the dove, and, and, and then it's quickly interrupted. Out of nowhere, Jesus is all alone and tempted by the evil one, just like Adam and Eve standing before the tree. Jesus, too, is tempted by all the things of the world, appetite and ambition and approval. And if you remember the scene, all of those things begin with the, the two-letter word, if. The evil one says, well, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, take control of the world. If you are the Son of God, toss yourself off this cliff. Turn and take and toss. But may we know that because of this Jesus, because of his faithfulness in responding differently than Adam and Eve did, because of this Jesus, God now sees us like God sees him. God says to us, because of Jesus, you are my child whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. May we know that deep within the depths of our soul. May we know that as our true identity. May we experience that inner simplicity so that we may live it outwardly as we live life in God's family.